Good morning, as the kids are dismissed and they hand out the handout for this morning. Uh, thank, thankful for everyone that jumped in uh, last week and short notice to kind of take over and continue to have services. Uh, I'm still still got a little bit of congestion in my chest, but uh, definitely feeling a whole lot better than I did last Sunday. So uh, thankful for those who stepped up and stepped in and kept things going. And it's just a reminder that the church is about Jesus Christ and we serve him while we have strength and then we pass on and whoever's left continues, picks up, carries on. We keep marching uh, towards Zion until Jesus returns, takes us to be with him. We get that new creation. So God is good. God is good. If you believe something, it changes your actions. Like a rope bridge across a ravine. If you believe it is sturdy, then you walk across the rope bridge to get to the other side. If you believe someone's claim, it changes your actions, right? I can remember one time uh, uh, I was watching Tad's Boys. This has been several years ago, and Jude was just a wee little guy. And we went, walked down to the park that's next to my house, and, and Jude came up to me and he said, Pastor, I need to go to the bathroom. And I said, okay. I said, there's a porta potty right there, you know, the, there's no... No permanent bathroom at our park. There was just a porta potty there. And so he walks down there and he opens the door. He opens the door and he closes the door and he walks back to me and he says, Pastor, that's not a bathroom. And I said, Well, Jude, it is a bathroom. I know it doesn't quite look like a normal bathroom, but it is a bathroom. And he says, Okay, Pastor, if you say so. And he took off and he walked down there and he went and he used the bathroom. And so. If you believe someone's claim, it changes your actions. And so Mark in the Gospel of Mark, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter one. We're going to look at the first 15 verses this morning. Mark makes a claim at the beginning of his gospel regarding Jesus. Now, for the people in the time of Jesus day, they knew that there would be a Messiah coming And the words Messiah and Christ are interchangeable. Uh, Messiah is a Hebrew transliteration and uh, Christ is a Greek transliteration. It it means anointed one, a a person who is commissioned by God for with a special task. And in the Old Testament, we had priests that were anointed and we had prophets that were anointed and we had kings that were anointed for special tasks. Now, Mark mainly describes Jesus as a king in uh, chapter 15. That will become prominent. (coughs) But there's this expectation of an anointed one, a Christ. And when Mark wrote his gospel, he began with a claim that Jesus is the long expected Christ, but not just the Christ. Mark adds another claim about Jesus. Look at Mark chapter one, verse one. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the 
Son of God. This is good news. Gospel means good news. This is the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, when he says Son of God, he means by his very nature, he was God. God in the flesh. And my question for you this morning is, do you believe that? Do you believe this claim that Jesus was the Christ, God in the flesh? Mark goes on to support his claim. And he shows us that it was always the Lord's predicted plan to come to his people. Look at verses 2 and 3. It says in verse 2, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Again, this is the Lord's predicted plan to come and appear to his people. Mark quotes here from two Old Testament passages. I know it says, uh, Mark says, uh, as it says in Isaiah, the prophet, and that's going to be the prominent of the two quotes. (coughs) But... uh, The first one that he quotes from is in Malachi. And I've given you uh, in your handout there, or if you want to turn to Malachi chapter 2, verse 17 through 3, 5. We want to catch the context of this quote, because when Mark quotes this, he wants us to pull in the idea that's going on around this passage in Malachi. And we're going to see here the Lord's plan to come to his temple and purify his priests. So in Malachi, we have these challenges that the the people have for the Lord. And it says in Malachi 2.17, you have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? So there was a lot of evil going on in those days uh, when Malachi gave his prophecy. And the people were kind of like, well, the Lord must approve of evil people. Uh, Or where is he? Where is the God of justice? And then we find our quote that's used in Mark in chapter three, verse one of Malachi. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Now, the temple represented God's presence among his people. He will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old, as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment." I will be a swift witness against sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. So we see this twofold 
purpose in his coming. He's going to refine a group of priests that are going to make offerings that are righteous to him. And he's coming in judgment to judge those who falsely follow him. But then Mark also quotes prominently from Isaiah 40. What's the message there? Well, if you look, I put Isaiah 40 verses one through five. Here we see the Lord's planned preparations for his appearance. Isaiah 40, verse 1, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. God's presence. And all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Here we see a message of comfort that indicates that the appearing of the Lord's presence is good news for his people. It's a message of comfort. And we also see that the Lord is, a pl- uh, is planning to appear to his people in the wilderness, just like he did in, in the Exodus, in the book of Exodus, when he appeared to them on Mount Sinai. After they had come out of Egypt, he appeared to them on Sinai. And Isaiah is referring to this using that language. He's saying, look, it's, it's going to happen again. God's going to appear to you in the wilderness So Mark wants us to see that the predicted appearance of the Lord has happened. And he wants us to see that there was an exodus of repentant ones who came to see the Son of God. Look in Mark chapter 1. Back to Mark chapter 1. Look at verses 4 and 5. We see this exodus-like preparation to see the Lord. John appeared. He's the messenger. It's coming before the Lord. John appeared, baptizing where? In the wilderness. Okay, so he's tying us back up to what he just quoted. Make a place in the wilderness. Prepare the way before me in the wilderness. So John is in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him. Like that Exodus language of going out of Egypt to worship the Lord. They're going out of Judea and Jerusalem to this wilderness area to him. And we're being baptized by him in the River Jordan, confessing their sins. And then we see a prophetic revealing of the Lord's plans in Mark chapter one, verses six through eight. Now it says, John was clothed with camel's hair and he wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. This is to call back to us the prophetic dress that uh, John is wearing. He's dressed like Elijah was. In verse 7, and he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Instead of receiving the law after their exodus, the Son of God will baptize his people with his very presence. 
Now, let's pause in Mark and consider whether Jesus did what was claimed in Mark 8, that Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, because Mark is writing his audience is the New Testament church, the early church. And so they're going to have known about some of these things. And I've given you there in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, the talk of the new covenant. Did Jesus do what was claimed in Mark 1, 8? Because when the people of Israel came out of Egypt, they were brought into covenant on Mount Sinai. But there is a prediction about a new covenant that's going to happen. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I brought them or when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach their neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin No more. Here he speaks of this new covenant where the law is placed within his people's hearts. And in order to do this, he was going to place the spirit, his own spirit in his people. And the receiving of the spirit was something that was promised in the Old Testament. And there are several verses that predict a special outpouring of the spirit in the latter days. But we're going to look in particular at Joel 2.28. So it was predicted in the Old Testament, fulfilled in the New Testament. Joel 2.28, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young women shall see visions. The next passage I've given you on your handout there, Luke 24, verse 49. This is after Jesus' resurrection, but before his ascension. Okay, so this is before Pentecost. Jesus said, and behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then in Acts 2.33, on the day of Pentecost, the spirit came down on the people with like cloven tongues of fire. He purifies them and they begin to preach the gospel in different languages. And the people in the crowd are responding and they're saying, what is this? And Peter claims that the Joel passage has been fulfilled on that day. And he says in Acts 2.33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So Christ told his disciples after his resurrection, stay in the city until you're clothed with power on high. And about 40 days after his resurrection, he went to be with the Lord. Ten days later, he sends the Spirit upon them. Then we see in Galatians 3, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. How does this happen? So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. We are justified by 
faith alone in Christ alone. And when we do that, place our faith in him, we are given the Holy Spirit, not with fanfare or anything else. It's just a, something that happens. We see that in Ephesians 1.13. It says, In Christ you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And so, if you have trusted Christ as your Savior, God has placed His Holy Spirit within you. He has marked you as one of His own. And this baptism of the Spirit will refine a person. And make them a priest who can offer righteous sacrifices. You see there in 1 Peter 2, verses 4 and 5, As you come to Him a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a what? Holy priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Hearkening back to Malachi... When he said, I'm coming to my temple and I'm going to refine the priests and make them to where they can offer righteous sacrifices. First Peter 2, 9, he calls us Gentiles included. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I want you to know this morning that you must repent and believe the gospel because Jesus is the Son of God who baptizes His people with the Holy Spirit. Your only hope of being saved is placing your faith in Christ. So repent of your sins and trust Jesus Christ who is the Son of God who baptizes His people with the Holy Spirit. Now returning To our passage in Mark, we're going to be looking at verses 9 through 11, seeing the the Lord's appearance. It was the Lord's plan to come to Israel and baptize His people with the Holy Spirit. And that plan is being prepared for by John the Baptist. And using Exodus language, we see that John has called God's people out of Jerusalem and Judea to prepare them to meet the Lord. But who is the Lord? Mark doesn't leave us hanging He tells us in verse 9, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. When He came up out of the water, immediately He saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on Him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are My beloved Son, with You I am well pleased. You see, Jesus is the Son of God, God in the flesh. The Lord has appeared to Israel in the wilderness. And we see here uh, the Trinity represented in this passage, just kind of as a side note, uh, because we have some false teaching on the Trinity. One of those false teachings is modalism. In other words, there's one God and that one God appears as either the Father, the Son or the Holy Spirit. And the, 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 the way that we would explain modalism would be that There's one David Harris. Right now he is appearing in pastor mode. But when he goes home with his wife, he'll be in husband mode. And then when he's with his kids, he's in dad mode. Right. So there's one God, three modes or modals. Modalism is what it's called. And it's a false teaching. 
because there's one God who exists in three persons. And I've placed on your handout there a, a, a note from the ESV study Bible with a little diagram that gives you the four statements that teach orthodox teaching on the Trinity. And we won't go into all that this morning, but I just want you to see that in this passage, modalism fails. Jesus is God, but where is he? He's on the earth. He's in the water, right? And then where's the spirit? He's in the air, right? Coming down upon Jesus. So he's he's in a different place. He's he's so it can't be Jesus can't be in all three places at once. And then where's the father? Where's it say his voice came from? From the heavens. Right, so we have God the Father in the heavens, we have the Spirit descending, and we have Jesus in the water. Three different places, three distinct persons sharing the same divine nature, the Trinity. I encourage you to look over that note, consider those four statements on the Trinity. But what we have here is Christ's baptism. Why is Christ being baptized here? Well, when we are baptized, we are identifying with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, right? I believe what we have here is we have Christ identifying with His people. He's identifying with us here. And I want you to note the flood language that we have. Here we have water, we have the heavens being torn open, and we have a dove, right? And if you remember after... After the flood, when the flood waters had receded, Noah sent out a dove and it finally came back with a little olive branch. And, and so God's judgment upon the earth was complete. It was finished. It was done. And, and so now there was peace. Jesus here goes through the symbolic judgment waters like what we do when we're baptized. We go through the symbolic judgment waters. But eventually, he's going to experience the literal judgment of God upon the cross. But not yet. And here, when the heavens open, it's not judgment waters that come upon Jesus, but the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove. And again, in the flood narrative, the dove represented the fact that God's judgment upon the world was over. His wrath was satisfied. Here, the Spirit comes upon Jesus and God's wrath against our sin is going to be satisfied by Jesus, and we can have safety from God's judgment in Christ. We can be saved from God's wrath against our sins by being placed in Christ through faith in the gospel. If you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, I urge you today, repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. God will look upon Him and forgive you. If you're If you've not been baptized, that's our public identification with Christ. I would encourage you to do that. If you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, but you haven't been baptized, I encourage you, get with us and be baptized. Make public your profession of faith in Jesus Christ. The Father here identifies Jesus as His Son and states that He is well pleased with Jesus Jesus as the God-man is going to be a new Adam who completely obeys the Father, even when he is tested and he is tempted. Now, if we were to follow this, we not only have flood language here, but we have what happened 
when the people came out of Egypt and they went to Mount Sinai, they received the law, right? And here we have the people coming out of their spiritual Egypt in Jerusalem and Judea, which is going to have judgment brought upon them. They're coming out of that. And we're seeing the receiving of the Spirit coming down. But Jesus is going to be the new Adam who completely obeys the Father, but he's going to be tested. Look at Mark chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. After, after God has verified the claim that Christ is God in the flesh, God himself verifies that, we have God's enemy appear. It says the Spirit immediately drove Jesus out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Satan opposes God, so Mark uses this as another indication that Jesus is who? God, right? Jesus is God. Angels are the ministers of God. And so we see another indication here that Jesus is God in the flesh. The setting of Jesus' temptation is like an anti-Eden. While Adam was in a, a garden and surrounded by tame animals, Jesus is in the wilderness surrounded by wild animals. Yet Adam failed when he was tempted. But what about Jesus? What does Mark say? About whether Jesus passed the test. He doesn't, does he? Why doesn't Mark tell us that Jesus successfully resisted Satan's temptation? Well, because Jesus is God. Can God sin? He sure can't. Right? It's just another testimony that Jesus is God. God cannot sin. And so Mark has made this claim verified by the Scriptures, pointing to this plan for God to appear, and then Jesus appearing, and God Himself with His own voice stating, this is My Son in whom I'm well pleased. Jesus resisted by Satan because He is God, and God, God's enemy is Satan. He is ministered to by angels because they are ministers of God. If you believe someone's claim, it changes your actions. Mark makes a claim at the beginning of his gospel regarding Jesus. Mark claims that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. God by His very nature. God in the flesh who is going to baptize His people with the Holy Spirit. Do you believe that? Because if you do, here is the message that Jesus has for his people. Look at Mark 1, 14 and 15. Because now the, the messenger has passed away from the scene. We have that new setting, if you will. It says, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel for the forgiveness of sins and the receiving of the Holy Spirit. You must repent and believe the gospel because Jesus is the Son of God who baptizes His people with the Holy Spirit. And so I ask you this morning, if you believe Mark's testimony, 
Will you repent of your sin and trust Christ alone as your Savior? Will you do that today? Will you, if you've trusted Christ as your Savior, will you be baptized? Will you identify with Him publicly? And then, if you believe this, He's the King of His people. And He rules and He reigns. And here in a moment, we're going to celebrate communion with Him. Union with Him and union with other Christians. And so I ask you to examine yourself. Where are you in your walk with the Lord? Are you living in sin? Is there something that you have not repented of that you're holding on to? I urge you to repent of that. How are your relationships with others in the body of Christ? Is there anyone that you're bitter towards? Is there anyone that you're holding a grudge against? Is there someone you've wronged? You need to repent of that and make that right. Because we are celebrating being one with our Savior. And the church is the body. So we celebrate being one with one another. We celebrate by taking symbolically the bread that represents His body. That we are His people. And we are one with Him. How is your walk with the Lord? How is your walk with His people? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for Your plan to appear to Your people. Your preparation for appearing to Your people. And then, Father, fulfilling Your promise to baptize Your people with the Holy Spirit. I thank You that Jesus came to die for His people. And I pray that You will be honored by our lives and glorified by what we say and what we do and how we behave ourselves here on this earth as we represent Your kingdom rule until one day our King returns. Lord, thank You for Jesus Christ. Father, if there are some among us this morning who have yet to repent of their sins and trust Christ alone as their Savior, I pray that You will... Resurrect them from their spiritual death, Lord. Help them to see the goodness of Christ and the terribleness of their sin. I pray that they will repent and call out to You to be saved. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.